You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, beautiful listeners. Welcome. My guest today is the sharpest financial mind that I've had on this podcast. J.R. Grodneck is his name. And once you hear this episode, you'll think he might also be called Nostradamus because I held this episode from being released just to see if all his predictions would come true about where markets were headed, about whether we'd see massive inflation in months ahead. Dude was spot on with everything. He did not miss, and that is not true. I didn't (laughs) deliberately withhold the episode. I lost it. Yeah, it was on an SD card somewhere, and I will blame my one-and-a-half-year-old this time, but no excuses. I should have released this long ago. In fact, I was so impressed with JR, not just as a prophet, but as a sharp, competent fella, that I'd not only do business with him anytime myself, but I'd recommend him to any of you who might be in need of the sort of financial services that he offers which is more multi-generational family planning. If that's what you need, he is your man. What he does is leverages deep knowledge of global financial markets and takes the passion he has for investing and helps to guide his clients through market trends. JR has been featured in Forbes. He's been a VP at a huge bank. He's now managing director at the Learner Group. Did I mention he drives a Tesla? True indicator of success? (laughs) Now I kid because I care. Listeners, If you're thinking about buying a car, you could do worse than starting here listening to, as I said a minute ago, the sharpest financial mind that really I've ever had a discussion with. So you want to know if you can afford a Tesla? This might be a good episode to hear. And speaking of kid, JR has four of them, and he doesn't have a wife. So ladies listening, my guest is divorced and on the prowl. So you prospective stepmoms out there looking for the ultra successful type, I ask him some very personal questions, questions like, what do you look for in a potential mate? And who's to say the Man Overseas podcast can't lead to an altar near you? And if you were to meet, let's say, a husband on on the Man Overseas podcast or from the Man O podcast, let's say it's JR for argument's sake, a man who's proven himself to be prolifically prophetic, not pathetic, like your last dude. What's his name? Not important. I brought some cocaine. If you snore in, she became a vacuum. <laughs> I only do that because it's important to remember where you came from, folks. And me, as for me, I was born in New Orleans. Get killed for Jordan. Skateboard, I'm gnarly. Drake, Tunch, and Barbie, you know. Do, do, do. That's right. Louise is from there, too. And I will probably continue paying homage to my roots in similar ways to what I just did. Probably at least until my daughter is old enough to say, Dad, you're embarrassing me. And then I will likely double down. (laughs) Yeah, because dad doesn't care if you're embarrassed, sweetie. You'll get over that. And I'll watch your skin grow thick like Lizzo. (laughs) Hell, maybe I'll become a rapper. No, seriously. I I don't know what I'm going to do with my life yet. We don't know where we're going to live in September of this year. How could I know what I'm going to do with my life? We're in Guatemala now, by the way. Had no clue we'd be here when the calendar said Mother's Day in May. So how can I say with any certitude where I'll be when my daughter is old enough to get embarrassed. I'll tell you this, she does not have that trait 
now. Embarrassment has completely missed her. She'll rip one in the high chair louder than dad ever has. I'm talking middle of dinner. She'll rip, smile at everybody, seated at the table, and holler out, Toot, toot! <laughs> Where was I? Matchmaking. Oh, maybe that's what I should do. I should be a matchmaker. I could vet people real quick. I get a nine in my office who spent the last decade on social media perfecting selfies, arrogant as all get out. So, of course, I hook her up with some D-bag who's got money. She comes back complaining that he was a D-bag, and he reports back to me that she's arrogant and unfeminine. And so then I become a coach, and I tell her, look, you're going to be hot a little while. He's going to be rich forever. <laughs> and to him, I say, dude, if you, if you don't lose this D-bag persona acting like a simp, taking too many selfies yourself, afraid to put a woman in her place when she's being arrogant, you don't stand a chance. You'll be flying cargo planes full of rubber dog shit out of Hong Kong. Alone. <laughs> That's a Top Gun reference, of course, which I haven't seen. I haven't been in the States since it's been out, but I'm dying to see Maverick. Anybody see it yet? Leave me a comment. I want to know what you think. But back to my guest. I was going to say, should you ladies find yourself marrying JR, and it's a long shot, I know, but you'd also be marrying an author. That's right. He recently co-authored a book titled Family Value at Risk. I haven't read it, but in it he shares critical insight on the risks and rewards of wealth planning. So he's passionate about markets. And I would ask you, is passion important in career choice? That's a debate that goes on quite frequently. And I don't know the answer to that question. You might think passion for the game of baseball is a prerequisite to being worth a shit as a baseball coach. But what if your passion is for helping to develop boys into men? Well, I would argue coaching baseball is a career path you might want to consider, whether you have passion for the actual game or not. The same could be said for selling software. Maybe you couldn't care less about technology, but have a passion for helping people to solve their business problems by way of software solutions. Many believe passion is, is table stakes for success. I wouldn't go that far. We've all heard, pursue your passion and you'll never work another day in your life. The flip, flip side of the passion coin is what author Cal Newport wrote in the book, So, so Good They Can't Ignore You, which is actually a line he stole from Steve Martin, who once was asked, what is the secret to success? And Martin's response was, be so good they can't ignore you. But it's the subtitle, I believe, that's equally important. It reads, why skills trump passion in the quest for work you love. He argues in the book that the acquisition of skills is way more important than passion, and that is so true. Thinking about the calls that I have each week with younger folks on the ascendance in their careers, the word passion never comes up, not once. But do we talk about having a range of skills, being well-versed in important aspects of life? It comes up on every call. We're working toward improving relationships and communication, presentation skills, making wise decisions with your money or physically, or vetting people, or dating prospects, or potential employers. The list goes on. So you want to get to work developing skill sets and becoming more competent. Once you stack up various skill sets, that'll take you much further than finding your passion, at least early in your career, which I would say is the first, let's say, seven to ten years. On this episode today, you'll hear JR and I discuss individual stocks Optimal Ways to Save for Your Kids College, which was probably my favorite part of this episode, aside from fun questions where I ask whether he'd go for Christy Brinkley, Christy Brinkley or Halle Berry, because he's about my age, and I remember what it was like to fawn over those ladies. 
in their prime. But he gave me some new ideas on funding college for kids that I now need to put more thought into. We also talk about how much cash to keep on the sidelines, meaning not invested anywhere else. Also, what he calls his crisis playbook. So although he's not a market timer per se, he does believe we've had three instances over the past 20 years that triggered crisis investing, which reminds me of Warren Buffett's famous line of buying when there's blood in the streets. JR would tell you that he attributes much of his predictive success to following an entity which has the most money, and I'll let him explain. So please enjoy this conversation with J.R. Gradnick. This episode was recorded on March 11th, 2021. Thank you, folks. Enjoy. JR, welcome. Glad to have you here, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're in Illinois, correct? I am. Every time I go to Chicago, it's in the summer, of course, but I say I would love to live here in Chicago. But half the year is miserable, right? You have, you're forced That's indoors. Right. That's right. How, how do you deal with that? We just stay active. You know, that has been my approach and it's kind of keep a routine and, and such. Enjoy outdoors when it's nice. Have your routine indoors. So I'm a big fitness. Uh, so I like to, to work out and, and stay active you know, indoors and outdoors all year round. So does that mean that COVID wasn't a big adjustment for you since you're forced indoors half the year anyway? Yeah, it, it wasn't. But I, I, I needed to stick to a routine I found is you know, in training and fitness was such a big thing for me to just, because it was so mentally draining on everyone, uh, that the exercise really helped me personally kind of carry through the the tough months of the lockdown and other things. I'm the same way. I always call exercise my keystone habit from which all other good habits flow. If I don't get my workout in, I don't sleep as well. I don't eat as well. I'm less energized. So yeah, I found that to be foundational for me and it's something I've always done do you have a sports background is that what got you into exercise yeah, I played baseball and ran in my younger years and it's just more the competition of it too and you know goals I like setting goals and fitness kind of does a lot of that you know and kind of push your body a little bit more and, and set different things to try to achieve I grew up in Wisconsin so I'm just mm-hmm. north of Green Bay okay but then I, I slowly came south and end up in Chicago the last 20 years can I ask you about Bitcoin since you're a financial guy? Now, Bitcoin is interesting. The way we think about Bitcoin is we think it's the new gold, yeah. right? And, and when you go back to gold, historically, a long time ago, the U.S. was on the gold standard, which just meant that you could take your currency and it was backed by gold. But then what happened is we went off the gold standard because there were, you couldn't print, you couldn't create more gold. You couldn't create enough when you needed to. Bitcoin's similar. You can only mine 21 million Bitcoins, ultimately. So there's both mining in, in both cases, but the limiting factor Bitcoin, we believe, will be like gold. Or you just can't print more. So it'd be hard for that to be a currency. But it, we believe it's like gold because there's a store of value. If, if we agree that gold's 2,000 an ounce, we can transact at 2,000 an ounce. If we agree Bitcoin's 50,000 a Bitcoin, you can transact similar to gold. But we just don't see it as a, a long-term currency because of the limiting factors, just like the gold standard. It's too volatile is what you're saying. Too volatile and you, you can't create more. Once you create the 21 million, that's it. There's no more Bitcoins. So it's, it's limited in, in scope as to the amount you'll ultimately have. Well, how do they overcome that limiting factor? Is it a matter of continuing to divide the Bitcoins? Is that what having is all about? It could, right? And that's that's one argument. But the, at the end of the day, there's still only 21 million, just like gold, 
right? There's only a limited supply of gold in the ground. You can continue to mine it and get a little bit more along the way, but ultimately it's, you can't double the amount, right? So it's, you can double the value, but it, it's going to be hard. And, and that's the issue with using it as a currency. You look at the financial uh, pandemic we just went through, right? The government needed to step in and print $3 trillion. You can't do that with gold or Bitcoin. Mm. So, we would get to a point where you own 0.000079 of Bitcoin or you'd pay for a Big Mac with that much of Bitcoin. Is that essentially how it would work if, if it were to become our currency at some point? Correct. Or you, the issue is you could have somebody buy up 10 million Bitcoins and really limit the amount of supply that everyone else could have. So it's like the, the commodity markets back in the early 80s where the... the um, the silver market tried to corner the market, the Hunt Brothers, a long time ago, right? They tried to buy up all the supply and drive the price way up. You could see that in Bitcoin as well, which is, again, a, a limiting factor. Why we believe it's kind of the new gold. You mentioned the 1980s, and I am curious how your profession has changed since then, especially whether or not you would have made more money back then. And I say that because of the ubiquity of information. We all have access to the same information, presumably, unless it's kept proprietary somewhere that I'm not aware of. But can you talk about your journey to what you do? And maybe is it something that turned you on at a young age? Correct. So in the 80s, we were kids. So maybe the 80s and 90s, how has the profession changed? And would you have made more money doing this back then? Well, it was just such a transaction business in the 80s and, and prior to that, meaning you it was hard to get gain access to Wall Street or investing. You had to have a broker. You had to call them. It was a one-by-one one transaction. There were a lot of fixed charges. I mean, it was hundreds of dollars a trade back uh, in the 80s and 90s, whereas today we see a lot of these at zero. There's no cost from a transaction perspective to to execute orders. So it was, it was just kind of one-by-one, one, whereas today it's much more a relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's really the evolution of the industry is – we we see investments as a tool to get to your financial goals. So it's much more planning focused, multi, multi-generation focused, because it, it's just a lot of times that kind of the old way of, of thinking we've found is parents or grandparents didn't want to share what they had in their estate. And there was very little communication between generations. So we see the industry evolving, especially the last five years or so into much more of Proactive communication, we talk about intentional communication between uh, generations so that you can plan as a family. And that's really where we see the industry. So it went from much more transaction-based and commission to a relationship and family-driven and and communication-driven is what we see. And percentage-based still? You said commission, but then relating it to now, you didn't mention how you were compensated. So a fee for service is the model as opposed okay. to in the eighties, it was transaction by So if you could generate a whole bunch of transactions, you'd make more money. Mm-hmm. Right. But there wasn't a goal that whether there was no linkage to the profitability of the transaction, it was just get the transaction done. You made your money and you can move on to the next one. Whereas uh, on our side of the business now, it's fiduciary driven. You're obligated to do what's in the best interest of your families and, and clients. So it's a different standard is where the industry has, has gone to and continues to evolve to. I have a real estate license and we're obligated by a fiduciary. Can you explain what a fiduciary means? And is that something that was around back then or no? 
it's been around since the 80s, but it wasn't as popular because it, it just was more common that you didn't want to pay an ongoing fee. There wasn't a, a value. There wasn't a perceived value. And the industry really was very small in the fiduciary side in the 80s. And everybody was used to calling their broker and doing a commission. It was just common practice. It was just what everybody talked about in social circles on, you know, let, let me buy and, and pay for this. And similar to, to the real estate in some ways where you have a fiduciary duty, but a lot of it is transaction driven. You close the deal and then you, you move to the next deal. Whereas with the fiduciary standard, it, it, it really kind of obligates the ongoing um, maintenance of, of the relationship and more things are going. So it's, and you, you really tied into the best interest as opposed to making a quick profit or um, a, a transaction. So th- we just feel that continues to be the, the best way to, to proceed in the industry. There must have been some enforcement following the recession or something, because I remember starting to hear more and more about the fiduciary as it pertained to wealth managers or financial advisors. Was there some sort of enhancement of the rule or something? The financial crisis was really the kind of revealed a lot of that, I would say, to, to more Main Street, because what happened during the financial crisis was there was a lot of underwriting during the housing crisis, and there was a lot of embedded self-dealing or conflict in a lot of the big firms that there was a product underrated in this division, and then it was being shorted in that division, and it, it just wasn't consistent across what was in the best interest of all clients. So it became clear in, in a lot of this to the fiduciary standing and why it was needed to separate that, to make sure that there was a legal obligation to do what was in the best interest. And that's where the, the independent side of the business, the fiduciary side, really exploded since the financial crisis on kind of going away from that embedded conflict that, that are in uh, a lot of the big firms. And you mentioned being proactive. Does that mean contacting your clients more than quarterly? Well, it's, it's proactive being, we talk about the wealth return as opposed to just the investment return, right? The investment return focuses on the stocks that go up or the income of the portfolio, but the wealth return really get, gets into everything, your real estate value, your insurance, the wills and trusts of the estate plan and fitting all that together because the, the more our families share with us, the more proactive we can be because we know the information and and tax laws change all the time. The rules change all the time. And it's staying current. So it's the proactive of, of sharing that whole wealth return approach with families. And then more importantly, connect with the next generation. Because a lot of times we, we found is matriarch and patriarch will complete their plan, but they don't communicate down to the next generation to make sure it's consistent planning between generations. And that's where we find a lot of hidden value for families. So you and I are 40 years old. Do you think we should know exactly what our parents' net worth is? I don't know about net worth per se, because that's a, that's a personal decision, you know, and, and families all are, we, we find it all over the board where some are, are open about communicating and others are just not comfortable. So the, the way we think about that is what, what should be communicated is kind of the bones of the estate plan. So for example, I think you mentioned you just had a baby, right? Yes. You should know if your parents or grandparents are planning something for saving or gifting to your grandchildren, 
in, in this case, because depending on how, what they're doing, you need to know so that you properly plan in the long run. And it's, it's simple things like that that matter a lot short and long term with things. So it's the communication like that, as opposed to the, the total value of the estate. You know, you get to that over time, but usually a lot of it just starts with the, the generational planning for kids or grandkids. I just opened a 529 savings account for my daughter. And I sent the U gift code to my dad just to let him know, hey, we prefer this over toys. <laughs> now, my daughter probably wouldn't, but that's so interesting you say that because you're right. If I'm planning to put $100 a month for the next 18 years, but then he intends to, when he dies, providing the funds for her college, well, then I could have been doing something else with that money. Is that what you're getting at? That's exactly right, because the 529 are a great vehicle for saving. But then the, the, the way the 529s work is they're age-based. So by the time you get to college, they're very conservative because you should be using that for to, to pay. If there's communication that there's intention to leave or fund that college, better vehicles for that savings is in more of a long-term growth strategy to build up maybe a, a purchase of real estate after college or fund a business after college as opposed to using the 529 that will be very conservative because it might not be needed. That's such a great point. I, I think many people neglect to consider their entire wealth picture or strategy when they're making decisions. And what you're talking about is my dad letting me know that he would be providing the funds for college 10, 20 years from now. That would enable me to be more holistic, more aggressive with the rest of my, with the rest of my investments. That, that's such a good point. I, I think you should even consider your net worth when you're purchasing a car. I think too many people are income focused when they should probably be more net worth focused. If, if one of your clients were buying a car tomorrow and they said, I don't have any idea how much I should be spending. My combined household income is a, about 150 to 200 but how do I decide how much to, to spend on a car? What would you tell them? Well, you, you made an interesting point there. You said net worth. And what, what we find with that is the majority of people do not know their net worth. A simple one pager of detailing everything between your 401k accounts, your insurance that you have in place, some investments you might have made along the way, your mortgage, your interest rate, and really know what that bottom line number is. The, the majority of people don't do that. And it's not like you need to do it every day, but once a year, especially in our age, it's very good to know where everything is and how it's titled. And then when you get to decision-making on your car question, you kind of know big picture where you're at, and then you can kind of go back to what to buy. So for example, it's become more popular to lease a car as opposed to buy it. And the reason is when you trade in a car, you can only get a tax credit up to $10,000. So it's become much more popular to lease. So there's little nuances like that that might change how, how we purchase in, in short and long term. Because that, that's a behavior change too from the 80s. And it used to be much more popular to buy outright. Now leasing because of the tax change is a, is a big trend we've seen. Is that a federal tax law or state by state? It's both. But it's a federally, uh, and most states have restricted the 10000 as well. So, for example, if your trade-in value is twenty thousand, you're only going to get a tax credit for the maximum of that ten thousand. 
whereas the leasing you kind of pay the taxes along the way so it's it's um much more efficient we find for kind of that cash flow and, and long-term wealth buildup and does it matter how much you owe on the car yeah it will so it's going to be kind of so if you you owe ten thousand, your trading value is twenty. You're still maximizing that ten thousand dollars. Is there an investor that you invite? Is there an inv- Let me ask you again. <laughs> is there an investor that you admire most? The, the economist Milton Friedman was is one that comes to mind. I mean, he was a University of Chicago professor, and my mentor Gene Lerner was a PhD student of his. And uh, it just comes to mind because he's he's taken maybe some criticism recently of kind of he, he he had a doctrine in the seventies of maximizing shareholder profit, and it was a, a big deal that companies' only obligation and management is to their shareholders and to maximize profit, and that was really a philosophy he had, which was very important on uh, the seventies and eighties for organizing boards and, and what companies should do. But I believe if he was still alive, he would have converted to much more of a shareholder value approach. And that's kind of how we think about it in, in terms like this. And it doesn't sound like a big difference between shareholder profit and shareholder value, but we believe it is. Because when you think about it, if you're maximizing short-term profit, you might not make a purchase of solar panels because it's going to hurt your profitability. But in the long run, it's better for the environment and better for for things overall, your shareholders are going to value that more. So even though your profit might be less in the short run, if your stakeholders value that more, you're going to make it up in valuation of how people view your company. So I, I think Milton Friedman was a, a famous view on that, that really look at that shareholder value as opposed to just maximizing that short-term profit. Another example is, is just higher wages, paying your employees and team members more. It's not helping your short-term profitability as you pay more wages, be it long-term buy-in. And you, from, a, again, your, your shareholders or stakeholders standpoint, if they're going to value that more as a company because you're a good corporate citizen as well and sharing in that, that even though your profit might be less, your multiple of what you're worth in the marketplace is going to be higher. I love the Bill Donahue episode with Milton Friedman as guest. Have you seen that? I haven't. Oh, you got to Google it or go to YouTube and check it out. One of the college kids in the crowd, I assume he's a college kid, if not a brainless 20-something, stands up and and asks him if the United States is becoming a product of just our greedy, arrogant ways. And Milton Friedman just shoots him down right away and says, which country, which economy do you think – doesn't run on greed. Is it you who's greedy? Certainly not. It's always the other fellow that's greedy. And he just, the way he breaks it down is so perfect and I'm probably not doing it justice. But for listeners, if you get a chance and you want to learn some basic economics, Milton Friedman is a master of simplifying and breaking things down. And any Donahue episode with Ayn Rand or Donahue, I mean, it's just, it's liberal versus a more conservative mindset. And it's, it's, very intellectual if you're into that kind of thing. And again, to build on your greed comment is, is that's where maximizing shareholder value comes into because you're going to do what's going to create more wealth. And if your shareholders value taking care of your team members and the environment, 
that's going to create more company value as well. It kind of comes back to his doctrine. Do you invest in individual stocks on behalf of your clients? We do. And so I assume that you do that for yourself too. Absolutely. So what we say is, is we take care of your money as if it's our own because we own the same things because our money is managed exactly the same way, the same securities, the same holdings. So believe me, we're watching this. So if you were my advisor, would we have a conversation about Amazon stock? Is that how that would work? No. Okay. We would set, we would set strategy between what you're comfortable with long-term growth and income needs. And then from there, we execute within the growth component as to what we're buying and selling. We might be chit-chatting about you know, general trends or individual companies, but decision-making, we have full discretion. And how many individual stocks are we talking about if I had a 2 to $3 million portfolio? Over 200. Okay. So it's, it's basically an index fund of stocks or a mutual Correct. fund. It's a lot. How come there's not as much talk about mutual funds anymore? It's just the, there's some shortcomings of mutual funds. So for example, you can only buy and sell those once a day. So you get the closing price that's hard to trade throughout the day. You, you can't control capital gains. So if you make a profit, you might get an unexpected distribution at the end of the year. So it's hard to do tax planning. And then just the fees within the mutual funds tend to be higher than other vehicles. So it's kind of, it, it was a, a major innovation in the 70s and 80s and 90s to, to kind of get long-term investing, but it's shifted focus to much more low cost and asset allocation away from mutual funds. How much cash as a percentage of net worth do your clients on average keep on the sidelines? With, with portfolios, we tend to have very little, especially in this environment, but we, we encourage people to do with their own personal budget is depending on, on where you are. If you're earlier in your career, you usually want about a six-month savings. So you kind of know your monthly budget, spend 5000 a month. It's nice to have a cushion of twenty-five dollars or $30,000. If you spend more than that, typically in retirement, depending on, on your comfort level, usually 12 to 18 months is a good cash cushion that allows you to kind of get through any period. Because the last thing you want to do is, is March of last year, have to worry about selling to raise cash when your investments are down. That's the last thing. So you always want a, a cash cushion to get you through. But with the investments alone, we, we always focus on, on shifting within the market to, as opposed to timing with cash because it just doesn't work out well if you try to hold cash and wait for the downturn to buy. Because once that downturn comes, you wait for it to go lower to buy in and you miss out as it comes back. So you mentioned emergency fund, basically 30000 if you're spending five grand a month. No additional cash? In this environment, because the biggest thing we're worried about is inflation. We've had all this stimulus, you know, the $1.9 trillion that was just passed. With interest rates at zero, you're just having your purchasing power eaten away by holding cash. So you, you need it to, for your lifestyle. But from an investment standpoint, it's just better to be invested. Haven't we been worried about inflation since 2008, 2009, though? Correct. And, and there's two big things that we see. So the consumer price index, kind of the broadest measure of inflation. There's two big things that are not included in the consumer price index that we've seen the most inflation. Stock prices and housing prices. 
and neither is included in the consumer price index. What's included is rents. So about a third of that index are rents. You look at New York and other places, rents are going to be flat to down. So it's really going to depress what we see in the, the actual government statistics. But try to do a housing project right now. If you would have done it a year ago to today, it's probably up 50% or more. So that's all the inflation that you have. So you need to keep your income growing and your investments growing to keep your purchasing power staying pace with that inflation that's inevitable over the next few years. So fear of inflation isn't in any way related to timing the market? It could be, but it's more within things that, that we see. So for example, interest rates have gone up a lot from a, a longer term standpoint in the last month. So the Federal Reserve controls the very short-term interest rate, which they're going to keep at zero for at least two more years. But mortgage rates are, are off 10, 10-year interest rates typically or longer. So you've seen a big jump in interest rates because of the inflation worries. So you could have timing within the market to maybe get out of your safer position and in fixed income and go into the market and the market's high. But the, the way we, we think about it is, is this year, if you think about commodity stocks, copper, aluminum, steel. And as we all stimulate worldwide to come out of the pandemic, we're all going to be consuming these at the same time. But it isn't as if you can go in the ground and dig out more copper faster. So there's a limited supply that we're all going to consume. So we really like to invest with the inflation to keep pace with it. And it's worked out very well. And we think it will over the next few quarters. Have we seen more than 2% inflation in the last decade? No. Right. And, and what the Federal Reserve has talked about is an average 2% is what they're, they're shooting for. So meaning they're, right now they're not concerned inflation at all because of the measure of CPI, as I explained it, right? With rents being a big component of that, you're not likely to see a, a big government number. And what the Fed wants to do is bring back the 10 million jobs that have been lost still from the pandemic. So that's what the Biden administration and the Fed are concerned about is to stimulate, pass all this to bring those jobs back. Because from a financial perspective, it's great that financial assets have come back. But if you're one of those 10 million people that haven't, that still are out of employment, it's terrible out there. It's still a very difficult environment. And that's really what they're focused on. Because the, the Fed has, continues to, to stimulate. And their belief is if and when inflation gets to be too much, that they will be able to contain it. And I believe they will as well. Please try to help me understand why in 2003, when I bought my first SUV, it was about two years old. It had about 25, 30,000 miles on it, and I paid about $20,000 for it. I just bought my wife an SUV that's about two years old. It has 25 to 30,000 miles on it, and I paid about $20,000 for it. How can that be? Well, there would, it's sort of the depressing view of inflation, too, because what you're talking about there is technology advances and efficiencies. So it's the, it's the same price, but the cost to manufacture that car is, is less. So it's more efficient from the, the standpoint. So profitability at that same price point, because the technology advances, is probably the same or better, even though it's the same price point. And a lot of that is just the you know, efficiency, and you can see what cars do. I mean, the difference in, in what your car did 17 or 18 years ago compared to today is, is massive, even though it's the same price. And it's a lot of that is the efficiencies of what the car does today as well. 
I thought it also may have something to do with the fact that every car manufacturer seems to be making their own version of this car. So it's a Volkswagen Tiguan, I think they call them. What I bought in 03 was a Jeep Grand Cherokee, both relatively nice. But it seems like Mazda makes one. Ford makes one. I mean, it just seems like everybody makes one of these. They look very similar. I thought maybe supply and demand had something to do with it too, and it might, but that's interesting perspective. I truly didn't know the answer to the question. When you talk about the auto sector, what's interesting is is where it's going because you, you look at the electric vehicles like Tesla, and the, we're in the top of the first inning, is a baseball analogy on the electric cars, right? In the next five to 10 years, we're going to be over 50% of the auto the cars out there that are going to be electric and self-driving. And it, you look at the efficiencies of, of that, you know, I personally own a Tesla and it's nice to come home and just plug it in the garage. There's no oil change. There's no maintenance and the self-driving feature. It's so much more efficient and safer for everyone. And then with the amount of data that you're able to kind of collect from driving the cars is unique. You know, Tesla knows where every car is, you know, wherever it is in the world. Whereas, you know, your car 18 years ago didn't have a lot of that chip technology and tracking ability. And so the auto sector ahead is going to be a very profitable uh, as it switches over to electric vehicles. One of my concerns as it pertains to electric vehicles is if you go back and watch political speeches going back to 1973, they talk about how wind and solar is the future, getting away from fossil fuels and we just haven't gotten there. And it does seem like we've been talking about for a while that we're all going to be driving electric vehicles, and we just haven't yet gotten there. Is there a target date, and is it possible that we'll still be talking in this manner 30 years from now? I'd be shocked if we are, because I believe now this, this trend, that we're going to be there a lot sooner than, than we think, because the, the self-driving technology continues to, to get better and better. Personally, I think we'll be there in five to seven years. To, to be kind of more than half of what's out there of this trend. Are you a proponent of buying stocks of companies that you use? Well, it, it's the nice thing with having kids, right? I've, I have four kids and what I've learned from, from children is they keep you very current on new technologies and, and new uh, games or whatever that's out there. And it's actually been a very successful strategy to stay current is just watch what your kids do kind of invest and and watch, you know, for example, Roblox just did an IPO this week, right? My kids are, love the game. So it's stuff like that. They're interesting to follow the trends. And then you kind of unpack what Roblox is doing differently, allowing kind of programmers and developers to kind of have their own content within it is is interesting, unique. Fascinating because I did see Roblox, IPO'd and I had to Google and figure out what the hell Roblox was. One of the things that I'm quickly realizing having a child now for the first time is, and I've been saying this for a while, my friends sometimes are jealous at how, how many books I've read, for example. And I tell them, well, dude, I've had so much more time on my hands than you have. Well, I also look forward because I consider myself a voracious learner I look forward to how many things my kid will be able to teach me, exactly what you're talking about. But I've already reduced my reading time by at least an hour or two a day. It's crazy. So 
there's upside and downside as far as the learning component. Can you give me an ex- another example of something you've learned from your kids that you've been able to use to benefit not only you, but your clients? It's just structuring your time is what I found because it's the one thing we all have a shortage of is time. There's only 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the more structured you are with your time, I think the the more efficient you are. And it's hard because with four kids, as you can imagine, there's just a lot going on. So, you know, if work, make sure to leave work at a certain time. If you didn't get it to get to it today, you can either answer that email when the kids are in bed or you pick it up tomorrow. And technology's allowed us maybe good or bad, depending on your viewpoint of being more structured with your time and, and kind of so that you could be more present, especially as a parent, because I think that's a big change that we've seen from our parents' age, where if you had to be at work to work and be in the office. Now that the pandemic has, has changed a lot of the work from anywhere trend, and it allows parents to be much more present with a lot of things I found. And again, the, the better way to be present is to have your structure in place so that you know you cut off at a certain time, you have that three-hour period till you get the kids to bed and, and you're you know, one-on-one with them. Can you walk me through your structured time? Yeah, I'm pretty pretty scheduled. So I'm usually at the, the office 6.30 in the morning. You know, I'm getting my reading, getting everything done, those kinds of things. And I'm, I'm at the gym by 4. So 4 o'clock p.m. And I'm home by 5. So five, everything gets turned off. I'm right there with the kids. We're doing our thing, you know, getting dinner, getting the routine, you know, then it's time for, for books. And with four kids, there's some great apps now that exist where they read stories to them. That's nice, calming, so you can kind of get a balance because it's hard to do four at once and, uh, you know, kind of start the day that way. Do you have a boss? A boss? No, we, we kind of run our own firm. So we've created different schedules because I've been very obsessed with, especially since the pandemic of the work-life balance, because when you think about one of the, the most difficult things of the pandemic are uh, moms, right? And the difficulty with kids having to learn from home, it's impossible to do Zoom school at home, be a mom and work. So unfortunately, many moms have had to choose to drop the work component in the last year. So what I did for the team is, is kind of create a, a, a Zoom school at my house. So what it allowed the moms to do is drop their kids off so that they could get their eight-hour break. The kids liked it because they were organized together in a Zoom school, and it allowed everybody to be more efficient, get that mental break, because it's it's so hard to, to do things. And I just think, you know, longer term that work-life balance and kind of focus on the total one just makes everyone a little bit healthier, more efficient with your time and more productive. So you have a team that reports to you? We have a team of 20. So we have kind of a a whole division of advisors. We have a support team, research team, uh, and estate planning team. So kind of all feeds together depending on where a family is or what their needs are. And it's kind of keeping everything in line because when you have a team of 20, you spend a lot of time with team development, career path development, uh, just building out where things are. And again, trying to transfer knowledge to them so that uh, everyone's better off from from all aspects. And then from a business standpoint, it, it just 
works out to be more productive and more efficient for everyone. So is it only hierarchical in your specific job? Because it sounds like research might be more lateral from a hierarchical perspective. Yeah, my partner Vanessa and I are kind of the co-presidents as we talk about it to kind of have the vision of the business and and development. Because the other interesting thing of of, uh, COVID, what it did is it forced, because everybody was stuck at home, much more training. And whether it's FaceTiming or Zoom, I mean, it just wasn't a common practice for the most part prior to COVID. And what it's been able to do is, is really create more training uh, efficiencies, especially as people are working from home, because you can, the ability to have a meeting via Zoom and share screens and, and really spend the time efficiently. And the group dynamics of, of Zoom and video conferencing has really helped as well. Do you think it's important for someone to have a financial advisor that's roughly their own age? Well, at, at this point, I, I think I, I viewed this as, as a doctor. Right. And, and if you're getting close to retirement and your doctor's getting close to retirement, do you want a doctor that's about to retire or do you want someone that's going to take you through the rest of your life? So what we've thought about in our team is, is kind of have multiple generations within that because you need consistency to take families to the end. So it's nice to connect with somebody in your age demographic, but then you got to be mindful who's going to take you the next 20 or 30 years. So it's a balance within the industry, and the industry itself is suffering from a shortage of talent, right? On, on two fronts, you know, one on on just female advisors and, and and women talent in the industry, and just younger talent. You know, the average advisor is close to retirement, and there just is not enough talent coming up behind to handle the demand that's going to happen because the largest amount of wealth is going to transfer in the next ten to fifteen years from the older generation to the next generation. I mean, it's a massive switchover that you're just, like I said, is, is a shortage of talent in the industry. And with lack of advisement, people will just blow the money. <laughs> and that's the major concern. And that's what we spend <laughs> so much time with on, on families is educating the next generation. Because it's, it's nice to inherit two or $3 million, but if you're not prepared for it, it can go very quickly. Yeah, I've heard Peter Malouk talk about He's out of Kansas City. He's been a guest on the Tim Ferriss podcast. Got quite a large following on Twitter. I like him. He's probably a little bit older than us. But he talks about having the conversation with retirees saying that you need to enjoy your money because many of us get caught up in how we've always lived in a relatively frugal type of lifestyle and then you get into retirement, most people don't start spending the principal until they're roughly 85 years old, from what I understand. And so he will tell them, do you know how many of my clients' heirs come in here and they've driven a brand new BMW and they're wearing a Gucci belt and, and all these things. And so they're trying to, he's trying to convince them to enjoy some of their money before they go. Or when you're giving, it's better to give with a warm hand than a cold hand. Are those conversations you have with your clients? Absolutely. The, the, the best tool we've found is that proactive gifting, right? Because it, it just allows you to start with a smaller sum and see how they do, right? Do they buy the new car with that smaller sum? Do they save it? Do they build a plan? 
And then depending on what they do with it, because again, with four children, as you can imagine, they're all different. So I, I look at my kids and I could see how they might all do it differently. And then depending on how they react with that, it's a learning opportunity. Either the one that saves too much, it's okay to spend some of that. Or the one that blows it all, here's a better way. And then what we find is that you start slowly and see how they react. And then you can adjust your plan from the parents or grandparents' perspective to build those safeguards in depending on how you react so that when larger amounts of wealth are transferred, you could use advanced estate planning to kind of protect everyone from either themselves or just creditors or, or other issues that are out there. I'm reminded of the commercial break where the it's like a, a broadcast alert where they say, this is a test. I would imagine if they're doing the gift test, they don't tell them this is a test. <laughs> they just gift them 25 grand at Christmas or whatever. And that's exactly right. Right. And <laughs> yeah. it's, because it, which is conversation with your children, you can imagine if you invested it, you might be talking about it. Hey, mom and dad, I did this and this. And so as a parent, you can kind of just see if your behaviors have changed with that versus, hey, there's a brand new Jeep in the driveway. <laughs> yeah. The average portfolio of your client is, is what? Uh, about 5 million liquid. Oh, wow. That's very high. And I imagine, and it it goes multiple generations. So we look at it as as a family. So there might be 20 family members that make up that household value. But again, it it goes into just communicating to make sure that it's one thing to have your parents in place. But again, it's that communication piece that goes between generations. A lot of times what's nice is we kind of sit in the middle. So we're not sharing values between generations. But because we know, we can guide either the parents a little better or the kids a little better, knowing what's in place and the values without having to share. If my dad is listening, I want him to turn this off just for five minutes. But one of the problems I have with my dad is I know roughly how much money he's made for the last 47 years. And I know that his house is paid off. I don't know what the hell he spends his money on. I mean, I have an idea. I know he put a pool in his backyard, but it just seems like there are some things that some, some memories that he could create by spending a little money that he doesn't take advantage of. And I would, I always think if I were in his shoes, I would have taken the family to the suite at the Astros game or just a unique experience that may cost you $2,500, but you'll only get this opportunity once. And, and as I was saying, better to give with a warm hand than a cold one. And so, but I just think that he's so set in his frugal ways that spending that amount of money, which of course, when I say set in his ways, not only in the habits of frugality, but he remembers how much $2,500 was at one time in 1988 when he was on the ascendance in his career. And the thought of spending that much money on any one day would be absurd. But of course, $2,500 is not as much as it used to be. And I just think that he should put together a plan to twice a year 
spend money as part of lifestyle and creating memories that you're never, especially while he's still healthy, he's, he's not yet 70 years old. Do that sort of thing now. Spend a little money. It, it'll go a long way. And I don't know why he doesn't do that. So, Dad, you can turn it back on. I don't, you know, no disrespect. I'm just saying what I would do if I had his money and it's easy for me to say, right? But do uh, you have any thoughts on that? Well, the, the issue is why. Why do you think you, you go down that path? And what we find a lot of times is there's just this behavioral nature of people that you want to save and you know, continually see your assets continue to appreciate. And it, it's just this fixation almost everybody has. You, you want to you feel better as your net worth grows and your investments grow. So it's hard to spend it even though you more than likely have enough. So what we find is, is a good way to, to get around that and feel comfortable is to have that financial plan. How much do I need in every situation? And kind of stress test that to, to kind of overcome that, that I have more than enough and I could do some of these other goals. I can fund either gifting or experiences and build that into a plan so that it, it, it is, I agree with you, it's, it's better to, to have these experiences while everyone's living than to have a nice pot of money when you're no longer on this earth. It's just a better experience. And then you just get into legacy. What kind of legacy do you want to leave? What does it mean? A lot of these experiences we find with families, it's nice to be left some money, but experiences are what we remember with our parents, our grandparents, is, is living these, these lasting experiences, and especially for grandkids. And to have that connection with grandparents and be able to do that, again, is that financial plan. What would 5000 of a trip look like a year? Can I afford that? Will I still be able to accumulate more over time? The answer a lot of times is yes. But it's just having that plan, stress testing it, and communicating is the key. That is so true. I want to go back to the 529 plan that I mentioned earlier just for a minute. If I were to put $10,000 into that account today versus putting $100 into it every month until she's 18. If the 529 were to get a 7% return, the math says that the money would double every 10 years. So doing the math, 10,000 becomes 20,000 in 10 years and then 40,000 when she's 19, 20 years old. Wouldn't it then be better if I have the $10,000 to put it in now rather than do $100 a month until she's 19, 20? No question. But then on top of it, when you get into family communicating in an even better way, what we find is, is through trust planning with generations. So, for example, if your, your father was going to gift, why not he front load some of that gift into a trust for the benefit long term? And then if properly structured, he could pay the tax on that trust, which is an investment planning vehicle that'll grow tax-free as well from your daughter's perspective. So it acts, looks much like a 529, and you have that communication within generations. We find that the trust is a very effective tool to design it a lot like a 529, and there's a whole bunch of short and long-term protections from doing it that way. But there's no question between the two of those, whether it's putting a larger sum in today or doing it with proper communication within a family is even a better way. Okay, so I think that this is where guys like you 
your value really comes in because I don't know anything about trusts. So could you break that down a little further for me? Maybe give me like two advantages and two disadvantages of starting a trust for her? Well, the average person, when you hear trust, you just kind of, I mean, it's only for the ultra wealthy people is kind of the perception of trust. They're expensive to do is another feeling as to, to properly do. But a lot of times what you find is that a lot of these are pretty basic from what they do, but you just get that scary perception. Oh my God, I trust. I don't need, I don't have that kind of wealth. But what you find is with proper structuring. So for example, in a a gift trust, many times it it, from a tax perspective is, is by the grantor or the person that funds the trust. Right. So then from the beneficiary's perspective, so let's use an example. If your father was the grantor and funded the trust for the benefit of your daughter, he's paying the tax. And again, a, a typical gift trust to set up isn't a very expensive few hundred dollars, right? And, and it, it's simple things. What age do you want your children to have access to the money, right? What, what age do you want them to have control over the money, right? There's simple things like that that you have to design and think about. And then from the cons, I mean, it, it's they're, they're, we don't see many cons except for the, the cost to kind of set that up and the perception of what's in it. But a lot of times we just like to use a one page summary of the trust that just gives you those terms so that it's, it doesn't feel as complicated because what we find is a lot of times uh, families will just set up an UTMA account or something like that. That's easy to go into your local bank, open the account, drop in the birthday gifts into those, those accounts. But the challenge is that could accumulate a lot of money by 18. It's their money. There's no restrictions on it. With the trust, you can protect them from themselves. You know, at this age, they can have an income stream. At this age, this money is used for college. So we just find that the, the trust vehicle, even though it sounds scary, once you implement and understand it, it's a pretty efficient and, and better way to, to do a lot of planning in families. So when you say there are no restrictions on this trust, maybe one of the, that could be a negative. Whereas a 529 plan, it is directed toward, by law, toward education, correct? Correct. Yeah, and the restrictions can be, depending on your perspective. So who's the restriction negative for? It's your daughter. She could be calling you, Dad, I can't have access to the money. You don't trust me? (laughs) Right, is the the conversation (laughs) a lot of times, right? And we don't want to say no. We want to say this is for your long-term benefit. It's not that I don't trust you. I don't trust the world out there is, is usually how we communicate it, that the, you know, a car accident could, could happen, unfortunately. This money's protected for you, that your creditors or, or people out there can't get to it. And that's really the vehicle and, and why it's becoming more and more popular. For someone who dies with a portfolio of roughly 2 to $5 million, what would you say is the average age that a grandkid would gain access to the money that that's designated by the deceased you know while they're still alive obviously but i was i was going through a will recently and one of the questions was if something were to happen to you and your wife at what age do you want your child to have access and she suggested i think it was 26 and my wife and i looked at each other like that's too old because 
she and I would like to think that we will raise our child, no guarantees, obviously, but raise our child to be mature like we were. And had we had the money available to us at 21, 22, we would have utilized it for great good, education, investing. How do you think about that? And what is it that your clients do typically? Is there an age that is, is that you usually see or recommend? The, the, the way we think about it is you, you can give access between, let's say, 21 and 25 is pretty common, but don't allow them to be their own trustee over it. So you kind of build in a protection of somebody you trust that's going to oversee that for their benefit. So it's uncomfortable for kids at that age to ask somebody else for money, but it's available. And then what's more common is usually 30 or 35, they become their own trustee of the money, meaning they can control, have say, have full access to the money. And that's usually that safeguard step approach we find pretty common that works out very well. They have access early, but there's a little bit of protection. And then ultimately at 30 or 35, they have full control over it. Do you ever see situations where trustees are paid a little bit? Well, they, they, and that's one of the changes that you see in the industry. So if you go back to trust departments, they, they've been around forever. But then what, what's happened is a lot of estate plans you go back to, they'll name a trust department as the ultimate trustee over all the funds. So then as a beneficiary, you're calling up a big trust department as opposed to an individual. And then as you can imagine in this day and age, it's very costly to have all that extra corporate trustee work doing everything, the investments, the tax work, the guidance over the trust. It's a lot of expense that we find to be very expensive and, and probably not as efficient as it might have been 20 years ago. There was an article written on Forbes.com about you. And I read that you manage a fixed income portfolio of $300 million. And as a team, you guys have $1.4 billion of assets under management. That is so much money to me. <laughs> Has COVID impacted your business at all as it pertains to any of the numbers that I just flung at you? For sure. And it... COVID and just in general technology advances have just shortened the cycles. You know, the, the news we consume is so much faster. I mean, you used to, you wouldn't get the news till the next day in the newspaper. Now it's so instantaneous. And what it's done is, is you, know, you look at COVID, we basically had the Great Depression in six weeks from a financial perspective, a drop off in economic activity, whereas the Great Depression was many, many years a long time ago. So it's just the, the cycles are so much quicker. And you just have to be quicker with your, your decision-making because when you look at a, a lot of people and long-term investors that have been doing this far longer than, than I have really looked at the COVID and the, the shutdown last year to be similar to the financial crisis of 08, 09. And that was about an 18-month cycle, right? But here it was four weeks between from the, the stock perspective of the downturn. So I, I think we just find that everything is so much quicker and you just have to be much more nimble and efficient with your decision-making because if you think too long, you already missed. <laughs> Do you think the fact that it was such a short span is a function of our getting information instantaneously nowadays? Definitely part of it because of the fear factor. I mean, it was such a scary uh, initial start last year. We didn't know anything about the coronavirus. 
but that people are getting sick and unfortunately passing away and it was spreading. Right. So from there, the fear sets in that you don't know. So you sell and you liquidate your investment. Well, everybody's selling at the same time because of the uncertainty and you saw a 35% drop in stock prices in a month. I mean, it never happened before to see such a, a big drop. But then what's key for, for professionals like us is to just stay calm. As difficult as it was seeing what was going on, experience of being through other cycles, for me personally, is my third crisis. You know, I started after the dot-com bubble, went through the financial crisis, and then uh, now. And each one had its own difficulties. But the key, we've always looked at these crises in, in kind of three parts. Number one, you do want to raise a little bit of cash to protect in times like that because you just don't know what's ahead. And it's nice to have a little bit in an uncertain time. But then what you find in, in every crisis is there's opportunity. And you need some cash to take advantage of the opportunity that's out there and then have kind of the, as Warren Buffett always said, when there's blood in the streets, so to speak, and turmoil out there, you need that cash to take advantage of the opportunity that's out there. And in each case, the best opportunity to invest for small companies. And this was no different. You know, in some sense, you could buy anything, but the best opportunity in all three cases were the smallest companies because they'd kind of fallen the most. Well, doesn't that run contrary to what we talked about when we first jumped on the recording is you're saying that a six-month cushion was enough and that your clients don't have cash on the sidelines in addition to that six-month cushion? Correct. And we're talking normal times. In normal times, which is most cycles, we talk about our crisis investing playbook. Right? We've seen three crises in the last 20 plus years. Crisis playbook is different because what you find in the middle of a crisis is that the hardest part for a lot of people is to stay invested. So by raising a little bit of cash in portfolios, it helps you keep the majority of your portfolio invested as opposed to sell everything. And again, it's it, the reason we're able to do it is just our ability to maneuver within the markets, the way we run our business. But again, we think crisis investing is different than in a normal period. So where does that cash come from in a crisis? Are you liquidating Real estate? Your logic of real estate is a good one because what we find in each crisis is you can't sell the stuff that's down the most because it's so cheap. It, it doesn't, you get very little return on that. So what you end up selling is the stuff that fell the least, right? So it tends to be your, your bigger, safer companies because they haven't fallen nearly as much in value. And again, as you're talking, we might have had about 20% cash by early March to the middle of March. So you, you don't want to go more than that typically. But again, you want to sell the stuff that's fallen the least, because then as you reinvest that cash in the stuff that's fallen the most, you rebuild your wealth much quicker. And does that constitute rebalancing? Exactly. And it's just looking for relative value in the marketplace. Again, you're, you're always rebalancing through the market, but crisis investing and periods like that are just unique and it, it calls for unique measures is what we found over the years. So going back to March, if you had, let's say, a hundred dollars to $200,000 on the sideline, and by on the sideline, I mean in cash, would you plan to dollar cost average, seeing as the previous downturn lasted, did you say, 18 months? This one lasted 18 days, basically. So... I had planned to dollar cost average, maybe put a, a sizable chunk initially just to get me going. But 
you know, I didn't get it in in time, the cash that I had on the sidelines. How do you think about that? No, dollar cost average is a good way to take the emotion out of it because that's one of the keys is, is don't let your emotions get to the best of you when you're investing because it rarely works out well. So you, that's a good way. And then our best guide has been the Federal Reserve, right? The Federal Reserve, it's the biggest bank in the world. They have the most money. So when they make decisions with having the most money, you need to listen to what they have to say. So March 23rd last year, the Fed said they're all in. You know, what they meant was they were going to do whatever it takes, they said, to support the system. And that was the bottom. That was your signal to be more aggressive to invest. And to us, that's what we took to not wait for 18 months for the cycle, but to, to really be more aggressive is falling Federal Reserve policy. And again, today, they continue to print $120 billion a month and keep short-term interest rates at zero. So it's not a time to be worried about whether there's a drop ahead. When the Fed says... We're worried about things getting too excited or too hot. Then it's a time to look, but that's a ways off. You mentioned emotions, and I can't think of a profession where emotional intelligence would be more important than yours. And full candor, when I think of your profession, I, I tend to think your job is easy except for when the market is tanking and you need to talk your clients out of selling their equities at the bottom, talking them off the ledge, basically. One, am I right in saying that? Is your, your job generally pretty easy except for downturns? And two, and this might be a personal question. It is a personal question. Has your ten, tendency toward hyper-rationality harmed you in your personal relationships at all in your marriage for example yeah so the, the first one we always think about it two ways so there's two good ways to kind of blow yourself fit on your retirement plan your investment portfolio one's at the top of the market and one's at the bottom of the market and both are equally painful right at the top of the market you can't miss out there's this hot stock that's gone up a whole bunch and it's going to take over the world and i need to get in and you buy at the peak, right? A month later, you lost half your value and you really hurt your retirement fund. The other is at the bottom of the market. You sell everything because it looks like it's going to continue to fall and equally are bad. So again, it's most difficult at the top of the market and in the bottom of the market. So from that perspective, it's just educating people. It's okay to put a little bit in that high flyer that you think is going to take over the world, but keep it in perspective with your long-term plan. And the same is true at the bottom. And that's partly why we tend to raise cash in crisis at the bottom, because it, it allows you to know that you have a cushion just in case it does get worse. But you know the majority stays invested and it's going to work out well. And as far as second part, you're looking on the... You have a tendency toward hyper-rationality, I would imagine. Being objective, managing emotions well, and that of others, which is emotional intelligence. Has this tendency toward rationality harmed you in your personal relationships in that maybe when there's a conflict, you are looking for root cause and working through the issue linearly, whereas the person you are arguing with doesn't think that way? 
I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's an interesting perspective because I, there's probably a lot of truth to that on, on things. Because when, when you look at, hey, we'll work it out over time and kind of get there as opposed to really talk through the issues, I could see you know the, the conflict there from how you run your business and, and manage clients versus the personal relationships on, on uh, a marriage, for example. Yeah, because what you do every day becomes part of who you are. And it's not always easy to turn it off when you walk in the door at home. And so if you had a conflict with a subordinate or somebody on your research team, you would handle it in the way that you've learned to best manage conflict. But then if you have a conflict with your spouse, it may not be best to manage it the same way. So I'm just curious, as someone who thrives because of their ability to, I don't want to say suppress emotion, but at least keep the emotions at bay, has has that harmed you at all in your personal relationship? I, I think it did. I mean, when you think about it. So what I've I spent the last few years on, and it's been much easier via Zoom, is I have a life coach, right, to, to kind of work on communication is really the big thing I, I think we all struggle with. You know, some of us are better communicators than others, but we could all get better. And to me, I, I think it's been a good thing because the, the life coach, especially via Zoom, I mean, it used to be hard if you have to drive somewhere to go into an office to really work on yourself. Whereas now you kind of flip open your laptop and you can have that hour session to, you know, here was a situation I wish I would have handled a little differently. How can we communicate better? And to me, the, the life coach has just been a phenomenal and just continue to work on you know, how you can manage relationships better in the future. You're talking to a life coach. I started as a fire coach. So for those who wanted to be financially independent and retire early, I'm one of those fire guys. But I set aside one day a week to help others achieve financial independence initially. But then I ended up helping people with so much more than their finances. So you're right, though. It's, it not only helps the client, but as a coach, I, I get to hear it again when I share it with them. And then I'm not going to – it helps to keep me on track, and it's, it's fulfilling for the, the person coaching, too. It's just the self-reflection aspect of, of where things are because it – you said, well, what makes you successful in life? You kind of stay laser focused on your direction. And it's hard to take a step back and be self-reflective on where could I be a little bit better on communicating or broaden your skill set. And especially as you, you grow within a, a business and grow a business, you, you need so many more skills to help other people. And communication, I just personally... We can't communicate effectively enough and, and get better at it. I mean, it's just better ways to do it. Keep practicing, work through the because you, you need conflict. I mean, conflict and everything is healthy to some degree because that's how you learn. And it's the same thing with the balance uh, I see in our team is to have a balance. You know, in our case, it's more than half women on the team and men. We have different viewpoints, and you're going to have conflict between that just because different viewpoints it doesn't mean one's wrong and one's better let's have some healthy conflict talk it through and what happens is you get a better result whether it's discussing a family situation a business decision or your own personal life 
one of the benefits of being a fire person is being able to have candid conversations and give my opinion on men and women in the workplace. And so I value candid conversations so much that I find myself inserting a viewpoint in casual conversations that sort of like I was talking about earlier, how you just become what you do regularly. Well, having a podcast and knowing that listeners value a lot of times when we disagree or when I'm willing to be adversarial, um, but also they value insight and candor. And so I find myself in my regular conversation, maybe saying something about masculinity, femininity, male-female differences, or sexual dynamics, intergender dynamics. And I can tell they're like, whoa, I'm not used to that. Oh, we're going to take our masks off, <laughs> you know? So I appreciate your con- candor in this conversation because uh, you, do, you do give some great insight. And money is generally one of those things that's tough to talk about. That's why I, was, I wanted to ask about uh, your kids. You have four kids. You're divorced. Are you dating? Is that something that you're doing now? Well, as, as I said, it, it's, it's difficult, I, I think, as you get through things. For me personally, my priorities are number one, my kids. So I, I'm looking, how do I focus on them being happy and healthy and all that good stuff? Number two, I, I focus on the business and kind of running things. Number three, my health, right? And staying active and mentally, physically, uh, you name it. And number four is is kind of dating. So it's really been, and especially since COVID, it's really kind of non-existent, I, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, overall, I, I think as you look ahead, I think you, things will open up and maybe that fourth priority will, will pick up. But I've really focused on the top three. Well, I'm interested to hear you say that yourself is number three and dating number four because uh, it's understandable that dating would be pushed down the list because of COVID. But when you're on an airplane, of course, you're going to grab your own oxygen mask first and then you can help your kids, right? So the fact that you put your kids and your business one and two and yourself number three surprises me a little. And I would think that your life coach would want to address that with you. <laughs> We're working on that. <laughs> but, nice. but, but the reality is what I've found is I have my kids half the time and just a better relationship you're able to build because when, when you're changing diapers on your own and you have to figure out dinner and you have to figure out the logistics, it's a whole new world as opposed to when you're, you're married and you're kind of in the middle, things kind of get done, you're helping, you're doing it, the kids tend to gravitate one or the other. Whereas where you're on, you're totally on, you got to fill the time, you got to keep them busy, you got to read, you got to do it all. And it's just been, to me personally, it's just been a great building a, a better relationship with my kids has been what I've experienced with that. And it's been fun. It's tiring. But it's fun. Your kids are how old? Uh, three to 11. Wow. Okay. So Something that may help listeners would be some insight on where you think you went wrong in your marriage. We had a lot of fun, right? So you're building a business, you're growing your career, you're you're really focused on that. But then, you know, at some point, I think you, you take a step back and say, "Am I happy?" Right with kind of everything, and and same for for her was just 
you're having a lot of fun. You have a good relationship. We're really good friends. We're still really good friends today. And we, we probably have a better relationship than, than we did before. But I think a lot of it is just, you know, are you happy? And how do you kind of rebalance your schedule and, and focus on, on priorities of what you want to do, what you don't want to do, what you want to do more of, what you want to do less of. And it, it kind of factors to your business, your personal, and a, a lot of that stuff. And to me, it came down to, am I happy? Mm. You know, what needs to change to kind of get to that higher level? Can you talk more about that? So had you subordinated your happiness for the first, let's say, how long were you married? 10, 15 years? 11 years. Was it secondary those first 10 years? And then you, you came to this realization like, man, I'm, I'm kind of miserable in this marriage here. Well, I think you just let distractions get in the way is how I did it. Like you move, you get a new house. There's a lot of stuff to be done with that. You travel a lot. So you get up and go and you just stay really busy and, and have a lot of distractions is what I found. But then, you know, at some point you, you just take a step back and reflect on things. And, you know, to me, it was just looking for, that was fun to stay busy and distracted, but is there a better way? And I, I started my journey on kind of focusing on myself probably six years ago where I, I had let my health go, you know, during the financial crisis and other things because of the stress levels and, and other things. And to me, I, I found I use a personal trainer four to five days a week and it keeps me very structured. And uh, the health aspect really helped me mentally, physically, everything confidence, I guess, when you think about it that way too. And then once you kind of go through that journey, I was looking for an improvement in, in my personal life and it just kind of didn't happen either. So then you just keep kind of moving ahead is how I thought about it. And similarly, I think from her, you know, cause it's the last thing you want to do is, is fail in a marriage. It's not a goal that you, you go through things, but then, you know, as you, you weigh the pros and cons of everything and, and look at what's best for the kids and then what's best for you personally, I, I think it was a very tough decision, still is today. But when I look back probably five or 10 years from now, from both the kids and personals, I, I think it's going to be the best decision for everyone. Was the oldest devastated by the news? He was. Yeah, he was the... But in general, I mean, this is where I think communication comes into to the fact of, of things. So you have initially that, but then properly communicating that you love your kids, you're still a family, it has nothing to do with them. They've thrived after kind of all of this, which I've, I've been surprised by how quick kids bounce back. Because the, the more you're present as a parent, the less stress it is on, on them and the more loving relationships you build that have just found them to actually thrive. And it's, it's kind of been a better overall experience for both my ex and, and the kids and me personally. Is she dating your ex-wife? She is. She hasn't married again? Not yet. Mm. Yeah. But I'm, I'm happy for her. Like, I mean, because the same thing, like it's, it's good for you to, to kind of go out and, and see where things are and, and find that kind of true happiness. Because again, I think the happier you are, the better a parent you are, the better, you know, the happier kids will be. And it's just kind of works out overall for, for the whole family. So dating's a whole new ball game with all the apps and all the stuff that, that we have at our fingertips. Are you using apps to try to meet people? I actually started with a matchmaker, which I, I believe is going to be a continued trend. 
uh, overall because it, um, you know, we're all busy and it's hard to be swiping left and swiping right <laughs> on these apps. I mean, it's just not a, I think it's more of a random approach to, to things. Whereas with a, a matchmaker, I think it's interesting because she gets to know you really well. And then similarly, so it's, I think you increase your odds of, of success in a connection. But with her is where I really focused on my life coach and myself personally, because for me, it wasn't the, the goal was to, to be a better human and personal and communicate better versus finding a partner. So we spent a lot of time on that. So I've, for now, it's been not a lot of success on that front, but just more, you know, kind of self-reflection and, and building myself personally. That sounds like something that a wealth manager would do is find a matchmaker, probably because you value your time so much and we're more mature at this age, right? But I can tell you, before I met my wife, I spent a little bit of time on apps. It is such a waste of time or you waste so much time going back and forth. And, and what really amazes me now is just how many options people have. When you get to a big city like New York or Chicago or and I found Houston was getting this way too so many people think that they can do so much better and they're always in that constant quest for better and unfortunately when you're in your 20s especially in early 30s you're going to meet a lot of women who want the bigger better deal right it's sort of a function of hypergamy I hate to bring it up but it's tough. And, you know, male nature, we have our own problems. Can you give me an idea of how the, the matchmaker stuff works? Is it like a meetup for lunch and you report back to the matchmaker and let them know how it went? How does that go? Yeah, it's exactly right. So she kind of has profiles. Here's the background. What Do you think it's a fit? Here's what they do. And kind of go, you know, similar to, to any kind of app, I would say it's just more detail. Yeah. And then because she knows and there's a relationship on both sides, it's, it's much more efficient that I think there's a 70% probability that you might connect, right? And then from there, you know, a lunch or a dinner and, and see how the, how's the conversation? Is it a good fit? Is there a connection? And then kind of report back and kind of get the feedback. Because it's like, I mean, you go on a first date, you're not going to get feedback from that person directly. They're either going to yeah. call you back or not. It's nice to hear from a middle voice as to, well, she said this and this about you, like this and this, but is not interested or vice versa. So it's good to have that. And then depending good or bad, you kind of have that ability to say, okay, I need to work on this or I need to work on that. And it's, it's good to just have fun to, to kind of grow, grow yourself personally as well. Yeah. How does her fee structure work? Assuming it's a she. It, it varies, right? You can do it all over. It's a little bit like your um, 529 example. You could play monthly or you could do a lump sum. And as you can imagine, you get a discount if it's lump sum versus mm-hmm. monthly. And there's no added fee if you hit it off and end up with a girlfriend? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No. How, how'd you find your matchmaker? She randomly reached out to me. Get out of right. here. Like on, the, on LinkedIn? Just a random text message. So she was doing her market research read an article, I think, about me and said, hey, I, I did some research. I think you're single. I'm reaching out. I thought it was kind of a spam text, but then I actually responded to her and we just kind of hit it off from there. I'm like, okay, heck, I need to focus. This is time is right. So it's just kind of a random, <laughs> random thing. That's awesome. So 
I don't know the size of my female listenership, but I do know that there are single women listening. Give me an idea of what you're looking for in a woman. Well, to me, I, I, I would look for three connections. I think you need to be connected on what you discuss, so a little bit of an intellectual clinic connection. You got to have you know, kind of a love connection over time. And then you know, physically, you got to have a connection because I, I think for me personally, if you have all three, they're not all clicking at the same time, right? But if you can rely on one over another or two out of the three for a period of time, I think you, you have more success that that could be a long lasting relationship. Would you call what you went through a midlife crisis? Probably with the benefit of hindsight, <laughs> you know, it's just one of those, but I, I think it's just self-reflective of what's healthy on, on things. Cause it's, uh, I think the numbers are what they are. I mean, the divorce rate's about 50%, right. And why, right. I mean, a lot of times it's, it, money probably causes a, a big issue on communicating over that. But to, to me personally, I just didn't want to be kind of cheating on the side. That's just not my personality. Like to me, I'm, I'm all in or not. Right. And it just felt to, like you make a commitment to do things. I, I just didn't feel the need to try to date on the side. Like I think is unfortunately too common out there. I'm a big Ayn Rand fan, by the way. I am too. I, I've, I dug real deep into it, like in my my late 20s, like uh, books about objectivism and things like that. And I've listened to John Galt's monologue over and over. Yeah, I found her to be fascinating. I also found those who criticize her typically have not read or understood what she's talking about. Yeah. How did you get into Ayn Rand? My brother. My oldest brother. So when I graduated college, I was sleeping on his couch because I right, had a part-time job because it was temporary employment. So he had the books and what else are you going to do? Because of <laughs> work and read and, and go out a little bit. And mm-hmm. he was a big fan. So I started reading from there. And it's hard because uh, I'm a little bit biased. Her, her ideal human is red hair and blue eyes. So <laughs> a little bit of a. <laughs> so, now that you're single, do you find yourself driving a nicer car and wearing nicer clothes, and keeping fit? Yeah, I mean, it's just a different approach because I think about it's a competitive market out there, right? Indeed. You, you got to look better. I mean, it's there's nothing wrong with it, right? Why, why not keep – because a lot of times I think in marriage you kind of get comfortable in the situation and you just don't – you know, everybody should want to stay healthy and work, whether you're, you're married happily or, or not. I mean, it, it's good for your, your health in the long run. And when I started my journey six years ago, it's, it's kind of been the case because I never really, I'm not a car person at all, but having a Tesla is fun to drive because of the self-driving and uh, it's fast, right? So it's fun to, fun to have. So do you own Tesla stock? And if not, did you feel like you missed out? For sure. I, I don't. The issue with it for me is I, I figured out the model too, too late. So when I, I bought the car about two and a half years ago, I wish I would have bought the stock. But the, the issue was they weren't making any money. And there's such a focus on the lack of profitability. But the real model with Tesla, if you think about it, is the, the future. They have the biggest first mover advantage with all the self-driving capabilities. So as, as the, everybody else evolves to self-driving and electric vehicles, a lot of them are going to lease the Tesla technology. Mm-hmm. So you're going to pay 
in the future, 10 or $20 a month for your self-driving on your car. So it's really going to be a subscription model that they're going to have. And if there's a hundred million vehicles in the United States and they're getting 10 or $20 a car, it's a pretty big market, right? And that data is very valuable uh, for, for what Tesla is doing among their other divisions. But the self-driving, all that data is really what's driving Tesla in, in my view. What is it about Rand that appeals to you? Well, it's just the intellectual aspect of the balance of pointing out the challenge between big government and kind of private business, right? And there's no easy uh, right or wrong. So, for example, I mean, since, since COVID, I mean, the government really had to step up in a big way to kind of backstop things with all the, the stimulus and, and such. But it, it's a challenge when you become too, too dependent on a government for what you need and, and what you have and, and really takes the innovation and incentive out of growing and, and staying current. So I think her philosophy is interesting to me that she maybe goes a little bit extreme on the big government, but I think you have to to just point out the flaws of, of letting things go too far because there is a, a balance between the two and it's a healthy balance. I mean, the U.S., I think we have the best balance in the world of that. But I think at different points in time, you can kind of go too, too extreme one way or the other. And it's good to have those guardrails and balance because I don't think it should be 100% one way or the other. Do you think America is due for a divorce? People tend to think that a civil war would occur if it was decided that conservatives and progressives would go their separate ways, but it wouldn't necessarily need to be violent. Do you think that that could be done? And is there a possibility of that occurring? Personally, I I think when you look at our our demographic, we think differently than our parents. And what we value is different than our parents or grandparents. And I think what a lot of us struggle with from a political standpoint is a, a lot of the leaders don't really represent how we view it on both sides. So me personally, what I, I would be hopeful to see is a third party in the future that's kind of a blend of, of the two because me, I, I agree with both sides on a lot of different issues, right? So I, I think a new party, because the millennial generation is going to decide the next election and the, the future elections for some time ahead. And you really would like to see a party that, represents us a little bit more that has a little bit of a balance because a lot of the social or or tax issues that we may have fought about on democrat republican side for many years have blurred to a big degree and again i think our generation is different than our parents or grandparents all right man i want to do some fun questions before we get out of here you want to do some fun ones let's do it all right social media net positive or net negative for society net positive you know, and, and when I think about it, for each each social media platform, at least the big ones, I think have their own different approach of what's successful and, and what to post and, and who's in there. Um, but I, I think net positive from a, a standpoint of information sharing and able to get, is there negative within it, of course, right? And I, I think you get into to some of that with, with uh, you know, being maybe too focused on looks or certain things on, on some social media platform. But overall, overall, I think it's a net positive. Which social media apps are you on? Uh, LinkedIn. 
Instagram, Twitter are kind of the three. And then again, LinkedIn, we look at more as, as kind of a professional network of sharing content and being able to follow and, and read content you're interested in either your industry or industries you're, you're interested in. For me, Instagram is just my kids and, and health. So I kind of focus on, on that. And then Twitter is more for sharing stories. Do you think not wanting something is just as good as having it? I think so, right? Uh, you know, in, in general, because it could be, per- I, I try to keep things very simple. So I, I just, I'm not a big things person. So, uh, you know, I don't have a lot of wants out there. So I'm content with, with simpler, I guess. If you could organize a dinner party of six guests, and have either everyone you've ever hurt or everyone who has ever hurt you, which would you choose? Definitely everyone I've hurt. Because it's just kind of, you know, as you reflect on your life, you know, whether it's a kid growing up, there, you can, everyone can think of a situation like, mm, I wish I could have handled that a little differently. So I, I think making amends with, with certain things, not that there's anything extreme, but I think it'd be good, you know, as you look back at certain points or certain situations that, went to Ben as optimal as he might otherwise would have handled with a little bit of either taking a few minutes to take a deep breath or, you know, whether it was when you were a kid. If someone offered you a hundred thousand dollars worth of one of these stocks, which would you take? The three are Spotify, Amazon, and Tesla. No question. Tesla. Yeah. Not even close. I mean, when, when you look at the long-term value and creation that's out there, Amazon, the other two are great companies, but, you know, the ability to deliver goods, you know, in some sense, Amazon has to come up with something new to really drive its next leg of growth. It's a great company. It's going to continue to grow, but there isn't really a, a new avenue of growth. Whereas you look at the electric vehicle market and what Tesla's able to do, as I said earlier, we're in the top of the first inning. There is many, many, many years of growth ahead. Since we're the same age... In their prime, who are you taking on a dinner date? Heather Locklear, Kathy Ireland, or Christy Brinkley? Good question. I would probably go with Christy Brinkley. In their prime, who are you taking on a dinner date? Cameron Diaz, Alicia Silverstone, or Christine Taylor? That's the gal who played Jan in the Brady Bunch. I would go with Alicia Silverstone. Good answer. J.R.? I really appreciate you joining me, man. This was fun. How can people connect with you online? I could follow either on uh, Instagram or LinkedIn. You know, either are, are good avenues. Dude, this was really fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you. If I can do anything for you, let me know. Appreciate it. Friends, thank you for tuning in. The most precious thing we have besides each other is time. Therefore, I will never take it lightly that you chose to spend your time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please copy the link and send it to a friend. And if you wish to follow my adventures, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks.